Hey, I'm Michael Dorinda. And I am Jake Bennett. And welcome to the much-anticipated and long-awaited North Meet South web podcast, episode 55. There we go. We are back. We are back live, even with the time change and it being almost midnight already, which I am positive people have got to get sick of me talking about this every single time we start the show, how late it is. But you know what? I got a nap today in preparation for this. So, Well, that's good. Well, that means you didn't forget about this, which is I, also I knew, good. I knew. I was just waiting for you to say something. Me and David were playing some uh, Rocket League, <laughs> uh, which I've been playing way too much yeah. of recently. Yes. Too much, too much, too much. Maybe that's why you're so tired all the time. Too much Rocket League, not enough Maybe resting that's probably when you should true. be. That's a, fair, that's a fair assessment. But we're getting better. You know, We're starting to learn each other's habits and how we rotate around the field and stuff. And so we're getting better. We're getting better. So we mm-hmm. had a streak last night. We won like five in a row. And then tonight when we started, we won like three in a row. And then we lost a whole crap ton. I feel like a gambler. So you're, you're yeah, playing yeah, co-op Yeah, we play two then? player. Yeah, so play 2v2. yeah. But I feel mm-hmm. like a gambler, like, you know, if like, if I can just get right through this rough patch, it'll, you know, I can make it up, you know, I can, I can, whatever. And it's yeah. just, it's, there is no end. Yeah. There is no end to this yeah. thing. Like that's the problem with no. this game is like, you can no. infinitely get better. Like, so at some point I'm just going to have to, well, that's the way it's designed. Have to cut myself yeah. off. So, uh, that's why all these games are designed. These, I mean, I know that rocket league you pay for but it's it's not an expensive game but all these games that come out now these battle royale things that are free to play and then you've just got to go out and grind your way through it and things like that they're they're just designed to hook you in yeah i mean that's the thing there there's so many of them that are free to play now because they've figured it out right like we just get the kitties hooked on it because they don't have to ask permission to play the first time because it's free no big deal yeah. but then you get all the you yeah. get all the, well, sure, all you the can have this free game thing. purchases yeah. and all that stuff you know and then you're uh, then you're spending yeah. way more money than you would have spent. Yeah, and the thing is, these games are free to play, but these companies make so yeah. much money. Like they don't charge anything up front, but it's all the the extra stuff that you buy. And you know, I, I sound like a nuffy because I don't play any of these games. It's just anecdotally hearing that you know, buying the loot crates and and you know, you know people that we're in um in two K for example playing basketball. You know. You can either pay to do the upgrades or you just grind it out. And a lot of it is just grinding because whilst you can pay to buy in-game currency to to purchase upgrades, you still have to grind it out in order to get, like to yeah. unlock. You have to be like a certain rank the, or something upgrades. first before you can even use it. Yeah, yeah. correct. Yeah, and that takes forever. Yeah, so it's like you can get to a certain rank and then if you get lucky, you get a loot crate that it contains this item or you can buy the item, but you still have to get to that rank. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, so yeah. anyway, it's been, uh, like you said, I've probably been spending too much time on it. So I've been trying to think about how I can limit that, like how <laughs> I can enjoy it, but still do it like responsibly. How can I be a responsible gambler, if you will? Yeah. So it's like, do I only do it on Friday nights? Maybe that's a good option. Like the rest of the evenings, like I just use as like a responsible adulting time. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, which I think might not be a bad idea. But, you know, it's like, it's so crazy. And normally I never get hooked on these games either because as soon as I feel myself starting to feel that pull, that tug of like, ooh, I want to play that game, I delete it. Yeah. Like that's what I usually do. Mm-hmm. But I've never had a game system or anything like that that allows me to like 
I don't know. I don't typically it's on my phone. So it's yeah. like, I don't have much invested by the time I delete it. I catch myself before I invest too much, but now I'm already in. Yeah. So like, and it's really freaking fun. Yeah. So yeah, I've been, I mean, I've been doing the same thing. I was sort of in more of a routine now with Eli. So it makes it a bit more predictable. So you know that when I get home from work, we do dinner, we on bath nights, we do baths, we, we play for a bit and then we give him his bottle and we take him to bed. And then after that, you know, Rhea and I will watch some TV together and then after that, she's studying at the moment. So she goes and does her study and I'll I'll either watch some more TV myself or I'll, you know, fire up the, the PlayStation and get a, a game or two of NBA in. And then we're in bed by sort of 10.30 at night, most nights. So it's nice when you get home, you just got to un, unwind and, and do that kind of menial button mashy kind of stuff, just especially yeah. in, in our line of work. Cause you, yeah, because the brain's on all the time and you're, you're always yeah. working, whereas when you come home, you don't really want to do that. So it's nice to, but I mean, I could be doing so much more useful stuff with my time. Yeah. yeah so I've like taken to like doing some reading, some like fiction reading, mm-hmm. which is good because it's like, it's not wasted time. It's just activating a different part of your brain and stuff. So yeah, I'm reading this series called Codex Alera. Really interesting. Pretty dang good. Is that sci-fi? No, you said fiction. Oh. It's like, yeah, it's sort of like, oh man, I, I wish I could tell you exactly the genre. I can't remember. It was funny though when I looked it up on Wikipedia, it was like hit for hit, like a young character who is like an outcast in society, like you know, <laughs> realizes that he has some power and then uses this power to blah blah blah. It's like literally like you could like it's like the author took the outline of this genre and like just filled in the pieces. Yeah, that's enough. what it feels like. It's like a color by number, but like uh, but that's actually really really good. The author's excellent, even though I don't remember his name right now. But anyway. We can get into it. We can get into some of the uh, Cody Code stuff here. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I talked about a couple of things that we wanted to mention. Before we do that, though, I wanted to give a shout out to some of our sponsors here. So uh, we do have some sponsors for the show, and they have been very generous in donating uh, some funds to allow us to keep this show on the air. So Andreas, Joe from WorkVivo, uh, JP Davey, CTO Sumo, and Rasmus. Thank you guys all for supporting the show. I got to see JP Davey a couple of weeks ago at Laracon Online. Always a pleasure to see my good friend JP from Chicago. He's an awesome dude. And so uh, that was fun. Got to hang out with one of our one of our show sponsors, you know? Yeah, it was cool. Perks. The perks of being a sponsor. Hey, the perks of being in the same country. It's it's hard here. Like I woke up and I think I saw maybe the last five minutes of Adam's talk and that was that was my Laracon online. So I've got through uh, I watched Freak's talk. I watched J Max oh, talk. Good. I watched That was really good Marcel's too. talk and I'm halfway through Wes's talk and Wes is a really good speaker. Uh, bless him for you know still doing it while he was off the back end of a cold. But I just I'm not interested in React, so totally that's that's just me. Yeah, I mean that that was the how it was for me too. Yeah. Like that was a great break for my brain. Like I, I kind of like didn't re- I had some other stuff I was working on, yeah. so it was like I paid attention halfway. But it was it was uh, you yeah. know like you said he's a great speaker. He's super entertaining. Yeah. Um. So even if you're not interested in the topic, you're still like yeah. He still makes you laugh. You know. And his but, slides uh, are really good, and he just like. Powers through them, just bangs, bang, bang, one after the other, after the other, just like, they just keep coming. They're great. Yep. He's super, super good. So yeah, my favorite talks in that were, let's see, Frake's talk was really, really good. Really good on event sourcing and kind of that whole deal and how that works. And basically then the packages, he talked about three different packages. Um, 
I think it was like Laravel projector mm-hmm. and then Laravel event sauce and then event sauce. He talked about all three of those packages. So those are really um, interesting. And with his event projector, you basically get this replayability of these events and you get projectors and you get reactors. And that's kind of like what that one comes with. So uh, a projector is like essentially a side effect. So these events get replayed and then these, I'm sorry, no, it's not all a side way effect. Around. All the way around. It's not. Yep. Correct. Sorry. A projector basically is like all the little changes that happen in memory to this object that eventually build up this object in the state that it's supposed to be mm-hmm. in after you replay all these events. And then the reactors are like side effects. So like when it's actually happens the first time you react to that event and you do some side effect, like you send out an email or something, yeah. right? Uh, if you ever needed to replay those events to create a new projector, however, you don't end up using those reactors. Yeah. So like the email doesn't get sent a second time, right? So it's it's pretty interesting. The other thing you talked about though, like with his event sauce was aggregate routes and how you use those to manage all your business logic. And he did a really great job illustrating that with the slide that he used. So it was just super solid, super, super solid. And he has a great way of like teaching. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's like a, a teacher at heart. I think, yeah, I think that presentation was the most approachable introduction to event sourcing that I've seen. I know that there's a lot of folks out there. I know that uh, Frank de Jong and uh, Sean McCall before him, they were really big proponents of it. But I think Frank has really given it that Laravel polish, you know, just bringing it in, like just bringing it to the masses and making it really easy to understand. Um, So I, I got a little bit excited about that. I don't, I thought we were going to maybe start using it, but I think we're probably just going to offload everything to Stripe, assuming it gets through all of our layers of discussion internally because it's going to go, yeah. Because yeah, we wanted to use something and I said it's, it, it's going to cause us problems too too soon. I've got another friend that works at another internet provider and they said they're bumping on it already. And with our, with our plans moving forward, we're going to hit those API limits and the the thing is, this provider just doesn't want that volume. They don't. Their their top tier plan is like one hundred twenty dollars a month, and they they just don't want the volume that we're going to generate. So I've I've I had the initial you, discussion. Would you ever threaten to hit the limits with Stripe? You know what I mean? Because it's like Stripe. It, it almost feels to me like you have these certain email providers like uh, I'm trying to remember spark post mm-hmm. where it's transactional emails only. Yeah. Right. That's kind of how they market themselves. Like this is not for like your mass email list. We only do transactional emails. That's it. Yeah. Right. So we have a limit that we are willing to let you send this many, but after that we just don't do it. Yeah. I mean, you can't even offer to pay us more money to do it. We only do transactional emails. Right. And so I feel like some of these services are like a, a little bit of like a commodity, like Stripe. It's like, or I mean, even with Stripe, right. They say like, I think there's something like if you if you post over a million dollars in a month, I think like they they at some point are like, yeah, this is we're not willing to take this on. We don't want to do this, yeah. which is kind of crazy. But I, I mean, and when you're I at that know. that kind of size, it almost makes sense to in-house a lot of that stuff. I think, but when you look at some of the companies that that they've got on board, like Target and Wish and Under Armour, you know these companies. Does Stripe have those? Stripe has those. Mm. Really? Well, maybe I'm misinformed then. Maybe I'm totally wrong. Yeah. Or maybe my information is out of date. I don't have yeah. any idea. But they, but I mean, yeah. They, I thought there was a... Yeah, they do yeah. stuff like Lyft as well, TaskRabbit, Deliveroo. Yeah, maybe, maybe I don't have any idea what I'm talking I about. I mean, now. I'm sure they would do everything. Like, I, I, had a, I had a chat with one of their APAC, like Australia Pacific salespeople, just to touch base to see, to discuss, you know, our volumes and things like that, to see what kind of rates they would be able to do and what kind of 
things they can do for us. And basically they can handle everything that we're already doing, which is great because it means we don't have to reinvent that wheel. They can do a whole bunch of the stuff that we need to do moving forward, which is great because it means I don't have to build it. And they can do a whole bunch of other stuff that like we just don't have to worry about. So from a technical implementation perspective, it's amazing. Um, And it gives us so much more flexibility to do things. For example, everything that we do at the moment is you get a, a set amount of data per month or you have an unlimited plan per month and it costs a certain amount per month. But we don't, we haven't historically really done add-ons or, um, you know, quota-based billing and things like that. So you would pay, say, for example, you'd pay for a 500 megabit connection to your business, but then that's a fixed amount per month and then you would pay per volume of data. So you would pay... Oh, interesting, okay. Um, and that kind of stuff is really easy to do with Stripe, but something that we can't do at all currently. Um, and, and to build that kind of stuff into our systems is doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's a bit, you know, it's, there's stuff out there that does it. So why would we do it? So I had the initial... So you just use Stripe dashboard to, management, to manage it or would you use something like Cashier? Um, no, we'd probably, or we could use Cashier to set up the subscriptions, yeah. You know, we'd go in there and we'd set up all of our products and things like that ourselves. But in terms of like billing, you know, uh, billing profiles or whatever they're called, um, whether you want to pay monthly or quarterly or yearly, for example, some businesses, sure. they pay yearly, but some businesses, they run on cash in the bank. So they want to pay monthly or whatever. So, you know, all that kind of stuff that Stripe just does for us. So, yeah, I had that initial discussion. I took the information that I had. I had my questions answered. I made sure that they could accommodate us in price because our current provider, we're paying significantly less than what their transactional rates are. But at the same time, sure. Stripe is paying, uh, is giving us a whole lot more. But once we discussed our volume, they said, oh, yeah, you're well above where we begin to start talking about reducing pricing. So nice. So that that's really good. But yeah, it's, you know, it's a big company and, and there's a big piece of work going on to like consolidate billing and invoicing and accounting across all of the businesses that they've acquired over the last few years. So it's now a discussion with like the board and the CFO and the CTO and the C, you know, the chief security officer and all of that kind of stuff. So I did my piece, we just give it to them and let them figure out what they want to do and, and step in when they ask me to. Nice. Yeah, we built an online payment portal recently. And um, unfortunately, we have to integrate with this old... It's not that. I mean, it doesn't have all the niceties that Stripe does, obviously. Mm. You have to use like a SOAP interface to like talk to it and all that. And it's kind of a yeah. little bit of a mess. But but they don't have... like I feel like... And for those of you who maybe haven't worked with Stripe before and haven't like had to figure out the loop of how it works... It seems like this whole idea of like tokenization should not be that hard for a payment provider to figure out. Yeah. Like this is a big thing that you can offer to your customers, which is essentially you have a private key, you have a public key, right? You allow them to have a public key, you collect all the card information, and you use JavaScript to submit it over to their servers on the browser side so that you have no PCI compliance at all. Yeah. You don't have to do it because your stuff never touches that card number. Mm-hmm. The service tokenizes that information for you, passes it back to you, sends it to your server. Then your server uses your private key to actually charge that. So you send up the new tokenized information along with your private key. Stripe looks at it and says, yes, that actually does match the public key that uh, that, that was created with uh, for this account. Go ahead and allow them to charge it, right? That whole process seems like it should 
be not that hard because the, our payment processor is tokenizing the information. It's just that they end up hosting the form as well, yeah. which Stripe will do, right? Stripe will do that with an iframe where they mm-hmm. like inject an iframe on your page and, and do it that way. But it doesn't seem like it would be any harder to send along those forms mm-hmm. and just and then allow you to get a token. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, since they don't do that, what we end up having to do is we're going to end up have to have this like box out there that's like penetration tested quarterly and has PCI compliance and costs 10 grand a year to like yeah. make sure that it's certified PCI and all that stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But man, if we could host our own form, cause the form that comes with these payment providers, most of the time is God awful. Yeah, it's it not nice. horrible. And it's hard to, and because no. it's an iframe, it's like hard to modify. We, we yeah. used in a previous job, we used like a page hosted by the bank, which we could design and they would then host for us. So at least we had some level of customization. Nice, over it, yeah. But, the, yeah. the Stripe element stuff is really nice because it looks good and it's functional. The way we do it at the moment, we've got like this JavaScript library that's hosted by the payment provider. And then we use that to then do the encryption of the details so that we only ever post the encrypted strings. Um, and that way, you know, we, we get to skirt the PCI with that kind of stuff because it's their, their library that's hosted by them and it's all happening in the browser. So... You know that makes things a little bit easier as well. But. So it's essentially it's essentially hosted tokenization. I mean, not I mean, it's essentially tokenization, right? Where mm-hmm. like the JavaScript is being done on the browser side to get yeah. that tokenized information back to you. Yeah. yeah. So it's sim- pretty similar to like what Stripe's doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so exactly. And then we just post the the token. So with Stripe, I think typically what happens is it will post directly to Stripe, and they send back a token, and then you and mm-hmm. then you store and use the token. Whereas yeah. this. Um, I mean, uh, with yeah, with yeah. with this thing, we we can the the encrypted details are allowed to hit our server and then go back out because they're encrypted already from the client. Yeah. So as long right. as it's all over secure, you know, over TLS and all that kind of stuff, it's all it's all hunky dory. So the yeah, the the, pay, the payment provider we're using their their stuff's all XML as well. At least they provide us an SDK, but they went through a big like two a little while after Stripe came out and started, came out in Australia and they said, you know, we're the next best thing and they're not really even close to what. <laughs> no. Not close. I won't name yeah. names, but uh, yeah. Yeah, it's like when you when you end up dealing with a uh, system of sufficient size, there are just certain things that it's not worth the pain of changing. So like this particular payment provider is integrated with our solution that we use for every, like our banking department uses and all that stuff and it's just not worth trying to recreate that and rebuild that right it's just like you just deal with it you just deal with the pain of making it work because there's so many other systems that are dependent upon these apis that we're currently using so it's uh you know it's just one of those things you have to deal with it so yeah whatever no worries okay so a couple things here one of the things i wanted to talk about which i don't want to make too large of a departure so let's um let's talk about this real quick um your migration packages so one of the challenges you've had in the past is that you kind of have a bunch of different applications that you want to be able to use the same tables and databases and all that stuff but the problem is if one of the tables changes in one place it's got to change in all the other applications as well so what ends up happening right is if you have a migration in one you have to update it across all the different ones whenever it changes. So your solution was, and I'll let you step in here. Okay. Yeah, the solution was essentially to package all of that stuff up into a like package of its own. So all of our models live in this package. All of our migrations live in this package for all of our database. So we've got seven different databases 
And at last count, we've got 307 migrations across all of them. So we don't typically run the migrations from each application. We built a a tool that hooks into the Laravel migration stuff so that we can use it as a standalone app. And we've spoken about this on the show before, so I won't go into too much detail, but it's called Nomad. Well, the reason I'm asking is because I was on, I was the one who was on the air with you and I don't remember how it works. <laughs> oh, so, so that's, that's why I'm interested it. in hearing about it is because, so I'm, it's becoming a little more clear now that I'm hearing you say it again, uh, which is that you have a package that hosts or holds contains your migrations and your models, which for me, I, necess- I wouldn't necessarily have to have. I, mean, I don't think anybody would really. It's convenient to have the models in the same place if they're going to be consistent across the applications. But you don't want you wouldn't necessarily have to have the models be be the same, yeah. right? I mean, like they could they could hit the same table and it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. But you have that package, and then you have an additional package, which is one that basically can consume these migrations and can consume Laravel migrations and run migrations on a database server on your behalf, but is not, in fact, like a Laravel application. Correct. Yeah. So Nomad is the the package that handles all the migration, the artisan commands. So that was an adventure getting that all set up. And then we have like a skeleton project called Vagabond, which pulls that in as a dependency and allows you to then keep all of your migrations and models in, in that sort of base application. So think of Nomad is like the the Laravel framework and then um, Vagabond is the Laravel slash Laravel, like what you would clone down when you start a new application. It's your starting point basically. And that gives you a a command line utility similar to Artisan and all it does is the migrate command. So you've got the migrate make or the make migration, make model, DBC, run the migration, migrate status, all that kind of stuff. So we would actually deploy that in two ways. One is into each of the individual applications, which then exposes the models to those applications, but as well as the migrations themselves so that you can use them in your test. And then we also deploy that application on its own. And then we would run the migrations from that application against our database server. Okay. So that way we would, we would when we do the deployment, we would run the migrations separately so that the database is ready and then we will deploy the application for that set of changes. Interesting. Okay. So to make sure I understand, both like any consume any application that you have that's going to consume the migrations and the models that you have that are common across the applications, they need both packages or just one? Uh, well, just the one. So just that the okay. the application that's got all of that stuff in it. So the vagabond project. Okay, and that contains all the migrations and all the models yeah. and everything. Yeah. Right, and then you can use those in your tests, and everything's good to go because yep. it's consistent across all of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and then you have Nomad, which ends up giving you the artisan commands to run on another on another server that will migrate your actual database. Yep. yep. Cool. Okay. So Nomad Nomad is actually is actually a dependency of that other application. Gotcha. So what I'm and what I'm bumping up against is I have two applications. One is like our claim submission portal where all the claims actually get submitted in through. It used to be that they were submitting stuff through like on PDF forms, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, but that's like difficult to suck stuff off of those like PDF forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we just said, why don't we just make a, uh, you know, an actual form and then allow them to upload yeah. them that way yeah. and then allow them to upload like documents that go along with this claim and whatever, right? So then that feeds into this database table and that database table is consumed by our data entry people. So 
those people will then, you know, use that table, modify those claims to get them to a spot where they feel like they are sufficiently ready to go into our system. Then they get exported and are, you know, exported and then, um, you know, imported into the legacy database that's used for actual like production stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the thing is like the people who are going to be putting the claims in from the outside, they have all of these fields, you know, probably like 150 fields that they could possibly fill in. Mm -hmm. And then are people who are actually doing the data entry, basically it's a mirror image of those fields, right? Like they have to have the same fields. Like, and if you ever added one over here, you're going to need to add it over here. So we ended up just keeping all the migrations in the internal version of the application, mm-hmm. like our data entry one and just migrating that one. Yep. And then the other one just doesn't, never receives migrations. But then as a result, there's no way you can do tests on it Correct. because there's no migrations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's where I'm at with that. But uh, yeah, and this is why we've packaged it up and it, uh, it brings in some interesting complications around getting those things working and hook in. So we deploy the configuration for each database goes into that package as well with the migrations. So you just like say, yep, yeah, load this service provider and it will give you access to the database configuration for, you know, for our CRM or for our coverage database or for our geospatial database or whatever. They're all so rather than having the config in the Laravel applications config slash database, it's all over there. So you don't even see that. You just declare the environment variables and, and go from there. The, the, other, the other thing that we bumped on now that we're, as I said, at 300 plus migrations is that it takes a long time to run those migrations. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. in order to get to our first test in, our, in, in your development environment in CI, it used to take like 14, 15, 16 seconds. Um, to your first test Dang. to the first test and then all, all the tests after that they run in like hundreds of a, of a second so you know 10 milliseconds or whatever so you're not using like an in-memory database obviously no we can't use an in-memory database because we rely on features that are only in mysql so that which makes sense speeds things up like, as well yeah and i think this is probably an easier way to go especially now that we've got ci set up having an environment in ci that replicates in or that, that is the same in development that's the same in production make sure that like you're not slipping something in that only works in sqlite or whatever so um yeah so what do you use what do you use locally to do your development do you uh, use valet yes i've got valet locally and then i've got a env.testing which just duplicates all of that database config and points to a test underscore version of the database and you know what i could probably just no because we've got a test underscore database so the prefix config that is in Laravel, you could have like database underscore and whatever the table names are. So you could use prefixes that way. But sure. So in my .env.testing, I've got um, CRM underscore DB underscore database. And that is set to test underscore CRM. So that we would run migrations on localhost against MySQL in a different database. So I don't blow away my, you know, what I'm developing against. Yeah, right, right. Yep. Um, and then in... In CI and GitLab, we've just got all of that set up as environment variables. That sets up MySQL as a uh, service, as a dependency, you know, as a Docker image in the CI process. And then we've got an actual MySQL database in CI. And then obviously in production, we've got MySQL running. Nice. Yeah. We've run into a couple of problems between 7.2 and 7.3 where like I'll be developing on 7.3. And so like if I was the one developing it, it blows up, right? Like or not developing it, but... 
if I was the one doing the code review, then it would blow up. Mm-hmm. But the other guy, so like we have like a actual intern who does some stuff and then like my other developer reviews that code. And if he reviews it and gives the thumbs up, then I assume, hey, it's good to go. All set, right? Go to deploy it. Nope. It's on a 7.3 server and all it takes in this particular case, the thing that bit me was this compact. Mm-hmm. So if you have, if you use the uh, compact method and one of the variables is undefined, it will blow up in 7.3. 7.2 and below, it doesn't, right? So mm-hmm. one of my guys has 7.2 on his box. And so when he runs it locally, it's totally fine. Yeah. And then it goes to production and it blows up. Yep. Right. So we're trying to figure out like, how do we, uh, you know, how do we make sure that that's going to work and i guess some of that probably is like hey test coverage right let's get test coverage on that and mm-hmm. make sure that uh, our our ci environment pushes it onto uh, 7.3 yeah um to make sure that's going to work but um but yeah local environment it'd be nice if you could catch it in local before i got to yeah. tests so and and that's that's key ci should be as close to production as possible so if your production yeah. environment is 7.3 so should your ci because ci is the only Absolutely. thing between you and uh and bugs in production yeah, I should just bump all of our Travis CI stuff to seven three seven two seven three because mm. I think I feel like some of them are still like five six seven zero. Yeah, right? okay. and it's like, yeah, that's yeah, probably, and you that's probably you like definitely come into all kinds of weird issues there. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. We we were in a situation for a while where we were starting to develop for the for CF, for PHP seven point two, but our production environment was still seven one. Um, so we ended up having to pin the the PHP version in Composer, which you can do. There's a, I think it's in Config Platform. You can specify the PHP version, and that will. But but obviously that's the opposite direction to what you're doing. You can't forward pin Composer to a version of PHP that's not running in your environment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I thought this might be an interesting one. So, well, let me let me first hit this one. So this week we had a command that we were running we were trying to handle webhooks for bounced mail mm-hmm. and we had talked about this in in uh cash money not too long ago so you know if you're ever sending like any non-trivial emails it actually does make a lot of sense that you would need to be able to handle bounced emails mm-hmm. and complaint emails so like if, especially if you're in an area where it's where compliance is required so if you're sending an email out with the information like hey by the way Remember we set up that payment plan and like we're going to be reducing the balance in your account that you gave us by this number of dollars on this date. Mm -hmm. Hey, yeah, that's coming up. We're going to do that, right? So you have to remind them at like nine days and at like six days, Mm -hmm. like, hey, just in case, don't forget because they don't, what they basically don't want is, you know, the people who have determined these rules want these people to have enough time to basically be able to cover that cost. They don't want them to incur a bounce penalty because they didn't know. And all of a sudden there's just this money that's coming out of their account. Mm -hmm. Right. So they basically have said, Hey, you need to let them know. Obviously it's a lot cheaper for us to send an email than it is to actually send a physical letter. So in any cases where the people have agreed to allow us, right, this is the same thing that you have with any of your, your electric, your, uh, your internet, right? They always say like, Hey, enroll in e-billing and let Mm -hmm. us send you an email instead right? Cause it's way cheaper. So we will send an email, but if that email bounces or if they marked it as spam and they're no longer going to be getting it, we have to handle those. Yeah. Right. So uh, have you ever had to deal with any of this stuff? No, I did actually have one where the customer called up because we'd suspended them and said I never got the, the invoice um, and now you've suspended me. And it's because like some point a couple of months ago, they had actually marked the email as spam. So our transactional yeah. provider just goes, oh, well, they marked it as spam. So you, we, we just don't deliver the email there anymore. I'm like, well, all right. 
Yeah, right, exactly. And like we also SMS them five days before as well. Yeah, in that case, you can kind of just wash your hands of it, right? Because it's like, okay, well, oops, sorry. Yeah. Like you're not under some governing body that's going to smash you with legal fees though. So, uh, or maybe you are, I don't know. <laughs> yes, you yeah, are. We are. Okay, oops. So there's a couple of different ways to handle this. Um, so we use a uh, simple email service, AWS SES, right? So in there, when you set up SES, you can also set up these uh, topics with SNS, Simple Notification Service, mm-hmm. so that when a complaint or a bounce happens, it will notify this, you know, this Simple Notification Service. And then for each one of those topics, you can have subscribers mm-hmm. to these topics. And then those subscribers essentially allow you to dispatch a notification to your system or yeah. to something else. So uh, you can use HTTPS uh, webhooks. You can use SQS to put something in a queue that you can consume later, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so in our situation, like this one was an external application, so it has access to the wide area network, right, to the internet. And so we could totally just use these HTTPS webhooks and, and good deal. Have you just so funny? I'm looking at you. I'm looking at you. I'm no. I'm looking at your face, trying to like figure out like because you, you had like glazed over, and I'm like, uh. wait a second, where am I going with this? <laughs> what the heck am I trying to say? Um, oh, no, 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 no. Hold on, I'm getting there. Oh, yes. Oh my gosh, I'm sure dude. You I feel can like such an old man right now. Drugs, I, I'm get it. Yeah, I probably can. I'm getting there. Okay. HTTPS webhook endpoint. In any case, I was like, this 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 process is sufficiently annoying that like there should be a package to solve this problem, but there's not yet. Yeah. So anybody who sends a simple email service emails, right, SES, you have to capture the AWS message ID and then you have to store that. And then when you get a bounce or a complaint back, you have to go look it up. So you have to basically store every single email that you've ever sent so that if you ever get a bounce or a complaint, you can look it up and handle it appropriately. Yeah. I digress. What we were doing is when it was coming back and we were looking it up, I noticed that in our logs when we were testing it, it was looking up the same exact email every time. Oh, <laughs> It was saying, oh, yeah, I have the email. Here it is right here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got that. Here it is. It's right here. <laughs> oh, hey, that one. Yep, yep. That's this email right here. Here it is. And it's like, what the heck? It's not the same email, yeah. right? And so what was happening is for some reason, one of our ID lookup keys uh, was coming in as null. Oh, no. All right. And then the query that we were running said, look up a notification where the message ID is like oh, no. percentage message ID percentage sign, uh. right? So you say, hey, go look that up. <laughs> well, here's what happens. If you pass a null in, in between those percentage symbols, you get where like percentage symbol, percentage symbol, yep. which do you know what that matches? Everything. That matches everything. <laughs> and so we said, go find that and then grab the first one of those yep. because if there's multiple emails, go grab the first one. So it would say, oh yeah, I have one and it would just grab the latest email, yep. whatever, right? Yep. It kept on grabbing the latest one. It's like, what in the world? So... <laughs> Lesson learned the hard way. Do not ever pass in a value that could be null into a like query where you're going to do that wildcard matching mm-hmm. because you're you're going to set yourself up for a world of hurt. So that was my uh, that was my situation this week, and it was uh, that was sort of a fun one to chase down because it was like, what is going on? <laughs> I could not figure it out for the longest time. Love it. I eventually found it though, and that was the that was the lesson learned the hard way. We'll we'll link it up in the show notes. I got a little tweet out there about that. But it was uh, sufficiently annoying that I felt I needed to let somebody else know about it. Lovely. That is, I've, I've just looked, while you've been sharing this information, I've just looked at our 
transactional email provider and they do do webhooks. So it might be worth getting that in there as well because it'll be useful to know because what happens currently is if a customer says, I didn't get this email, the contact center person then speaks to their manager or their team leader who then brings it up with me and then I have to go and look it up and then report back. So it's a whole thing. So if we can just put webhooks in there and then tie the sent email to, you know, and we can track the events as delivered, open, bounced, spam, unsubscribe, resubscribe, or reject. And we can just throw that all in a table and then they can just click on it and see what happened with that email. And then they never have to ask me silly questions again. Love it. Or a lot of times what we do sometimes what they offer as an option is they will just email you. They will just email like a monitor inbox, like when something happens that's noteworthy. Yeah. So like if a if a, if an email is bounced, It'll just email like this general inbox that you set it up to say like, hey, by the way, this email bounced. Mm-hmm. So like those people who eventually need to know, like you could just send it all to this inbox. And then if they needed to see if that email bounced, they could just go search that email in that inbox or something, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a really low tech solution, but that that might be sufficient. Yeah. Well, it's trivial enough to do it. So we might as well just do it. Yeah. And that way we can... Use some Nova. Use some sweet Nova. Sweet Nova. Sweet, sweet Nova. We've Because we've got like a, a like public facing... B2B API, we could just tack a webhook endpoint on there. Um, there you go. And then, yeah, we just need to figure out how to do that. Someone asked me about this. I asked a while ago for ideas for blog posts and someone said handling webhooks and they gave me some good examples. So maybe I should write this blog post. Ooh, dude. Let me in on this too because there's a really, really good pattern for this that we've used twice in the last two weeks, mm-hmm. which is a front controller. Yep, exactly. Exactly where I was going this. Yep. There you go. So I've done it. Would you care to explain to us what a front controller is? Let's talk about it. I'll um, I'll give some backstory to how we've done this in the past now, and then I'll give you my explanation, or my understanding of of the front controller solution. We used to handle webhooks, and when usually when you set up a webhook, you might only like, for example, we only care when the email has been delivered. So we would set up a delivered webhook controller, right? And then maybe later we want to start tracking bounces or spam. So then we add another, but you can only have one webhook endpoint. So inside your webhook controller now, you just you have a, a bunch of if statements. Which, or you have by the switch. way, was now was originally named delivered, right? Yeah. That was the original yeah, name. Right. right. So now you've got that Correct. Too, Yeah, yeah. Right? So you've yeah. got that. So you update this, you say, all right, go to our webhook controller or our slash webhook endpoint or whatever you want to call it. And then you've got like if event equals equals delivered, do this logic. If event equals equals open, do this. Otherwise, whatever. That gets that's fine for a little while until you've got like a whole bunch of things, and then you start. You might have a switch in there or or an if statement, same same goal. Then what you might start doing is like loading it, and this is what you've done, I think, is that you load in based on the event a different controller, and then you like use the container to resolve that controller and then hit that's handle method or something like that. Is that essentially what you've yeah, done? That's, yeah, that's the idea, right? And so basically what you've done is ex- you've explained it perfectly well, yeah. which is like the, the limitation you have is you only have one endpoint, yeah. but you have all these different events that could be coming into this one endpoint. Yeah. So depending on how you want to handle it, like, you know, this is exactly how the routes file works in Laravel. And really, any PHP framework, everything that comes into your your application all goes to index.php. Yep. You ever go look in your public folder and see that index.php and it's just got like bootstrap the application and load it up? That's where everything goes, yeah. everything. 
And then from there, it looks at your routes file and says, interpret this path that's on the end of this and tell me where I need to go. It looks at that, matches one of your routes, and then resolves the controller out of the container mm -hmm. and then dispatches that request and passes it through to that method on the controller. So basically, you just do that again is all you do. So you pass it to your webhook controller and then your webhook controller essentially acts as your routes file. Yeah. So you match the event up and then you say, okay, take the request, resolve a new controller out of the container and then pass that request along to the next controller that's actually going to handle the event. Yeah. So here's the thing. I don't think that's far enough. And I don't like that approach of like newing up controllers Ooh. inside controllers. So Ooh. so here's, here's what we did, right? We've got this. It's gonna get spicy up we've, in here. We've got this wonderful event system in Laravel, and we've got this wonderful queue system and this job system. So what? True story. So what we did is we would inspect the event, and then we would go and find a corresponding. And by event, just to be uh, clear, we mean the request. The request, yeah. So in in I'm just looking at the documentation for our email provider, so I'll continue down this path. In in their payload that they send to that webhook endpoint. They have an event property which has a value of delivered, open, bounced, whatever. So, what we what what we've done in the or what I've done in the past is basically look at that event and then go and create classes, jobs, if you will, queued, sure. queuable yeah. jobs. Um, yeah, yeah. In like app jobs, webhooks, right, or app webhooks, or wherever you want to put it, and then you have like a delivered mail hook. Um, or whatever that event is. So you've got app webhooks, mail provider, delivered. And then what you would do is you would check to see if the class exists. And if the class exists, what you would do is you would take the payload, you would dispatch the job, and you would immediately return a 200 to the webhook. Because this thing, yeah. the, the whole idea of webhooks is that they notify you and they don't really care what happens with that data, Right. They don't care right. if you were able to find a record corresponding to that. They don't care. All they want is one of three things. They want a, they want an okay response. So whether it's a two, usually a 200, thank you, or a 204 if it's, it's creating something. But probably in a webhook instance, a 200. A 400 is a bad request. Sorry, don't, don't know what to do with that. And typically a 400 level response that would, the webhook would not resend. Or a 500 level. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. Really? So even if it's like a 404. If it's a 404. Even if it says like, hey, not found. Yeah. The webhook will go, I've got an error, so I won't resend that. With with a 500 level response, you know, if you get a 500 or a 501 or a 502, I know Amazon does this a lot, Is or, or even Google Cloud Platform, that will send to your webhook. And if you return a 500, you're doing maintenance, your service down, whatever, it will try again in two minutes and then in five minutes, right. and then in 10 minutes, and then in 30 minutes. And eventually it would stop because, you know, it can't get through to your server. Yeah. So the idea being you want to respond to whatever is sending you the webhook with the right response as quickly as possible. So if you need to verify that the webhook is coming in for a specific ID and you can't find that ID, return a 400 straight away. If you can't find a handler for an event, you know, say you just not you don't handle that. There is actually an, uh, a status code for it, like an unhandled uh, or not acceptable or something like that. Is there an unhandled? Uh, I don't know. There's a great, there's a great website out there called HTTP statuses, status codes. Yeah, HTTP statuses.com. Statuses. Um, yeah, I've, I've referenced that a couple yeah. of times. So you could do like an unprocessable entity. You could return a 422 or you could, you know, whatever, right? So you would return the error there if, if you don't have a handler for it, okay? 
and then 500s would be generated by nginx anyway so you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff um if if your application is down for maintenance or whatever and and so you dispatch the job because whatever is sending the webhook doesn't care about the response it doesn't care what your application is doing with that information it just wants to make sure that you accepted that thing to do whatever you needed to do with it right because newing up the controller kind of gives me the feeling that you're actually processing the response in that request which mm, which that's interesting which, yeah. which as i said the and I mean, there's nothing wrong with that don't get me wrong if if you know if you don't care whatever about the, the the sender or if you control the sender even then maybe the sender does need to know but in most cases when a webhook, webhook is just like firing an event off into the abyss and like do whatever you got to do with it so ideally you want to respond to that as quickly as possible and then just defer processing to later and, and and that's what we ended up doing is that we dispatched a queuable job and it can just get processed whenever because it's not relevant to the sender what happens with that information most of the time. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I think um, that's interesting. So yes, yes. I do think most of the time that is a good response. Like, do I want to respond with a 200 if I've got, you know, and hopefully again, your tests are going to catch this or whatever. If, if like one of your classes that is supposed to be sending this thing out for some reason ends up, you know, maybe the, maybe all it needs to do is when you get a, um, when you get a bounced notification, all it needs to do is send an email to an inbox. Right. Mm -hmm. And that works most of the time, but you know what? Joey got fired last week and, uh, oops, he's no longer here. And mm -hmm. that's the inbox that it's supposed to be going to mm -hmm. or something. Right. And it, it, you know, that job stops working and it blows up. Yeah. Do we care to let the webhook know, Hey, by the way, you tried to, we tried to do something for you, but it did not work. You know what I mean? I don't know. That's, that's, it's kind of a trade off, right? The nice thing is like, it's not a user that's sitting there waiting. Mm -hmm. So if you have like a long running job, that's going to be happening fine, but it's not going to send it and then send it again, three seconds later and 10 seconds later, mm -hmm. it's going to send it like five minutes later. Yeah. So for me, like I'm okay with, for the most part, I'm okay with saying like, you can wait for 10 seconds if I needed to. Like now most of the stuff that I'm doing is going to be super trivial. It's yeah. maybe updating a database record or something like that. But, but yes, you're absolutely correct. You, you want to return a 200, even if, you have like a not found error or like you know i don't know it'd be weird for you to have a validation error of some sort like that would be weird but but yes 200 is definitely what you def what you want to do vast majority of the yeah. time right it doesn't care to be informed that you know yeah and it, all the business logic stuff doesn't matter about correct it just wants and, 200 and as i said if there is some error in your application or or you don't you don't know what to do with that thing or there's no handler for it, just send back the 400 and it'll give up or the 500 and it'll try again later. You know, that's, that's typically the way it goes. I guess not not every provider is going to do a back off and retry. If the webhook fails, they might just mark it as failed and, and you know, never resend that webhook. So most places that are sending webhooks will at least give you some history. So if you do yeah. find that one, like if you get a century error for a failed webhook, we can go and look up what sent that and see what, what Correct. response right, it got. Right. You can look in your logs and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, that's that's typically where I would go with it. Yeah. We try yeah, we we try it with like so with our, so that front controller pattern, that was Ryan Tablata, who mm -hmm. is a longtime 
Laravel community member, or at least was when I first mm. came on the Laravel scene back yeah. in probably like 2015, 2014, something like that in New York City. I think he may have even so, changed um, languages. I don't think he even works with PHP anymore. Yeah, he doesn't no. work really with Laravel anymore. Yeah, I think he works in Go mm-hmm, maybe. Mm-hmm. But anyway, super cool guy. And uh, yeah, he he wrote that blog post. So he was talking about GitHub webhooks at the time, yeah. right? In the same situation. Same and that was his suggestion, right? Basically bring it in, bring the request in, and then just resolve the next controller out of the container and do all your stuff in there, yeah. which is nice. Like if you have like a um, webhook uh, with, which requires like some complexity around how it's going to be actually handling that request, then a separate controller, a whole new separate controller is probably appropriate. Yeah, I was going to say, and that's if you're not doing doing a whole lot of processing or if you don't care about whatever sending the webhook having to wait for you to respond like if it's a second or two you know whatever it doesn't matter if it's if it's only one event that you've set this webhook up for it probably doesn't matter but if you're handling heaps of different events from different senders and things like that like you could just set up a, a webhook thing that handles webhooks from forge and from envoy and from like your transactional mail provider and from sns and from all these different places that thing's going to get busy if it's sitting there responding to webhooks to the point like if you're doing a lot of stuff and and again this all comes it's all situational it all depends you know what's happening on your end and and how many of these things you're interacting with and whether or not that's going to affect your application itself or not so yep i'm not saying don't don't do what you do i'm just saying there's there's quote air quote you know nicer things that can be done in that department yeah. And I mean, the thing is like, don't, don't introduce new controllers if a switch statement or a conditional statement will do. Like you said, Correct. like, you know, basically only introduce that pattern once the pain is enough that you're like, okay, we need to do something yeah. here. Right. Once that, that controller, controller gets does get really nasty and mm. messy. Yeah. So, so like for, for the two front controllers that we just wrote, you know, they're both for webhook endpoints, uh, but for the two front controllers we just wrote, they're just methods on that controller. Mm-hmm. They're just private methods. Yep. So basically what I have is I handle each one the same, which is like the first thing that I do is I just validate it. Like, hey, is this coming from the actual person I think that's supposed to be sending it? Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes that's a token with SNS. It's like it validates that it's one of the certificates that Amazon owns. And then it just says, okay, yep, you're good to go. So we know that you're going to be a, a payload that looks like what we're familiar with. And we validated that you are from the, in fact, the correct sender. So that's like in the front controller, it just does that very first before it dispatches to anything else. Then the next thing we do is we log it. So we say, hey, by the way, we got a webhook endpoint request from this with this event, just so you know. Uh, And that helps too. So like if it's an unknown event, it doesn't just like blow up and you don't get anything, right? You log it very first before you even do a lookup to see like, hey, do we have something that handles this? It just says like, here's the event. Here's kind of the payload, log it. Hey, we got something here. Yep. Then we do the lookup and we say, okay, basically we use an array get, you know, mm-hmm. right? We say like, hey, array get, here is the thing that we're looking for. And we basically just have like, what we have like a constant set in there somewhere that says like, hey, this is the string that we're normally looking for. And then we have the method name mm-hmm. that's next to it and kind of go down the list. And then if it doesn't have one, we just say like handle generic. And that's that's just called like the controller method that hand, that we used for that is like a private method just called like dispatch to handler, yeah. right? And you just pass in the event. And then it just passes that to the different private method that needs to handle it. And they're each like one line, two lines, yeah. right? So it's no big yeah. deal. So like it would be a total waste of space to introduce an entirely new controller just to say like, 
hey, do this yeah. one little thing yeah. here. So we're just using it like that. And you don't have to jump around in the code either. You can kind of see everything yeah. that's happening. Once it gets complex enough, then maybe we'll change it up. But but yeah, it's a, it's a nice simple pattern and it allows you to basically do some upfront work that you're always going to do every time the same way on all of them. Mm-hmm. And then just do the little thing that's different yep. at the end. Yep, 100%. Yeah. yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, and look, whether you whether you resolve another controller and defer handling to that or you, you know, throw it into a job or dispatch an event or whatever, like it's the same pattern. I think it's just how you handle... Yeah, it is. You know, how you get to the... From A to Z is just a little bit different. But it's essentially doing the same thing. Look at what's coming in, figure out what needs to handle it and then get that thing to handle it. Yeah, and it's a good pattern that you'll end up... Like once you start looking at that that way like you'll find yourself doing that pretty much all over the place because mm-hmm. there's tons of times where you do that where they, you know it's you know these switch cases yeah right yep. where you just have like if it's this do this if it's this do this if it's this do this if it's a default return this right that's all it is it's just a fancy switch statement at all yep. is all so yeah yeah okay where are we at we're here at 50. What time we we're at 50 i reckon it's probably a good place to wrap it up yeah it's very late for you because it is. I messaged you. Twelve forty-two. I messaged you and I said, "So it's almost time to record." And that was when you reminded <laughs> me that you sprung forward and that I was actually an hour later than what I should have been. So yeah. I will know. Yeah. If, I'll remember that for next week. But um, no, we're good. Yeah, we're good. I think. Yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap this up before we go. We need to say thank you to the the last of our individual sponsors, and that is Rasmus C. Nielsen from Makeable. Makeable is a small team of about 16 people located in Aarhus, Denmark, that builds web and mobile applications for their clients, primarily using Laravel, Vue, for the website of things. And they also frequently do open source thing with over 20 packages on their GitHub and have also contributed to some other projects, most recently triggering a new version of Spassi's Laravel backup. Um, They've been at Laracon EU for the last three years as well. So if you've been there, be sure to give them a shout out to us. Unfortunately, I can't get to EU and US. Uh, it's a bit tricky, but... Uh, and AU. And AU, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's happening, by the way. I mean, if any of you saw that nice. uh, Steve was designing the website on a live stream the other day, uh, it's looking really pretty. So I'm looking forward to that. That's awesome, yeah. man. But um, yeah, occasionally they do look for... Laravel developers primarily on-site, but also do some remote freelance. So if you're looking for a bit of freelance work, make sure you get in touch with Makeable. Not a problem. Not a problem. Thank you very much to to Erasmus and to Makeable for helping keep the show on the air. Awesome. All right, everyone. This was episode... 55 episode 55 thanks so much for tuning in with us if you'd like showing us for this episode you can find them at northsouth.audio slash 55 feel free to rate us up on your podcatcher of choice five stars is always appreciated and if you have any questions or comments hit us up at jacob bennett at michael dorinda on twitter and at north south, south audio audio today yeah no south audio north uh, oh i got the website wrong it was north meets south.audio slash 55 that's what yeah. it was i said north south.audio <laughs> i think i don't remember it's it's crazy. It's different every time. Yeah. Every time. Every time. You know what? Give, give a quick shout out to uh, Caleb and Daniel who started their new podcast, uh, no, no Plans, Plans to, to merge. merge, which was previously 20% time. So uh, yeah, they, they always do a great job. It's always fun listening to them argue yeah. about things. And they actually argue, whereas so. you and I just agree on everything. So we're very yeah, non-confrontational, we very uh, positive podcast. But those, those guys I always enjoy everything that they talk about. Um, my understanding is that the 20% time podcast will continue. 
going on from some other people that are still left at North Meet uh, at North Meet South. They're still left at Titans. So <laughs> I look I look forward to seeing what that takes, what shape that takes going forward. Awesome. All right, everybody. Thanks again. We will see you in two weeks. Bye all.